If you have your Bibles, would you please meet me in the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians? 1 Corinthians, we're going to be talking about hope this month. And 1 Corinthians 15 is um, really a premier chapter of hope in the Scriptures. And I'm going to be reading, we read uh, from 1 to 11 last Sunday for Easter Sunday. And today, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 12 to 34. I will be reading verses 12 to 22, and then verses 29 to 34. And the title of today's message is, The Resurrection's All-Sufficient Resource for Hope. Say that with me. The Resurrection's All-Sufficient Resource for Hope. Amen. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right. Do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This is God's word. There's no Christianity without the resurrection of Christ. Now, when we compare Jesus with other famous religious leaders, Moses, the Buddha, Muhammad, there are some similarities, if you were to compare the four. Uh, all four possessed wise, 
insightful words. All four had a level of charisma that attracted followers. All four were credited to have performed impressive deeds. And yet there's one big difference with Jesus that sets him apart. While Moses, the Buddha, and Muhammad died in old age, surrounded by followers at their side who committed to continue the work, Jesus died in his 30s. He was shamefully, painfully executed. He suffered a form of death that Judaism would interpret as the curse of God. Jesus himself cried out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And with the exception of a few women at the foot of the cross, his followers, for the most part, abandoned him. Peter denied him. Judas betrayed him. And I mean, it's like the wheels came off at his crucifixion. And and it appears to be a story of abysmal failure. You know, at best, a, a really good guy was beat down by the system. At worst, a man with delusions of divinity ran into the wall of Roman reality. I'm convinced that if Good Friday was the actual end of Jesus, we would never would have heard of him. We sim- he simply would have disappeared from the memories of history, which is often what happens to charismatic figures who fall short of their claimed expectations. And yet here we are. Here we gather. Why did someone whose life seemed to end in failure prove to be the most influential person who has ever lived? Why? Well, did you hear what the Apostle Paul said? Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Can I get an amen on that? Within a few weeks of Jesus' miserable crucifixion, those same frightened followers appeared in Jerusalem and they stood toe-to-toe with the authorities who had put Jesus to death and the apostle Peter stood up and said, God raised him. God freed him from the dead because it's impossible for him to be held by death's power. Peter said, we are witnesses of this. And then Peter says this, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Who Jesus was, who Jesus is, his real significance turns on the claim of his bodily resurrection from the dead. There it is. It's all or nothing. And approximately 20 years after the resurrection, after Pentecost, in the year A.D. 54, the Apostle Paul wrote to Christians in the Roman colony of Corinth. And he reminds the church that the resurrection of Christ is the all-sufficient resource for hope. Our scripture's theme is hope. Can anybody use some hope today? Of all of our differences, the constant quest 
for hope is common to us all. We all want a reason to get up in the morning. We all want motivation to continue. Now, how hard this has been because of this pandemic. It's isolated us and drained us. It has tested our patience and tried our endurance. We need hope. And church family, where you place your hope will determine the direction of your life. Whether you know it or not, your life path is directed by hope. Whether it's hope in a philosophy, a relationship, a dream, a location, or whatever, your life will be shaped by wherever you place your hope. Is your hope fixed? Is your hope secure? Is your hope sufficient for the path of your life? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 34, the apostle Paul explains why. Why you must place your hope in Jesus Christ is because he is all sufficient. He is hope for your mind. He's hope for your heart. And he is hope for your will. In these verses, the apostle Paul, he speaks to the mind, to the heart, to your affections, to your emotions. And he speaks to your will. And as we see these verses, we're going to see first in verses 12 through 19 that Paul offers an argument for hope. That is, he engages the mind. And then in verses 20 to 28, Paul gives assurance for hope. That is, he assures and encourages the heart. These are verses that say it's going to be okay. Someone is in control. Jesus is going to win. He assures the heart. Argues for hope. Assures for hope. And then, and then in verses 29 to 34, he issues a challenge from hope. Okay? So he speaks to the will. All right? He says, he says, you... You are capable of exercising choices based on your hope in Christ. I'm telling you, mind, heart, will, well, all sufficient resources that the resurrection of Jesus Christ provides. Let's go to work. huh? Well, first, in verses 12 through 19, Paul offers an argument for hope. Paul, Paul says our resurrection, our resurrection is inseparably and indivisibly connected to Christ's resurrection. Some of those Corinthians were, were claiming that there's no real bodily resurrection, that, 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 that life after this life really doesn't involve a, a body. And Paul says, how on earth can you say that? And in verses 12 through 19, Paul engages our reasoning skills. So we're going to talk about what he says, but I want you to talk about, I want you to consider how he says what he says. He's engaging the mind. In other words, church family, when you become a Christian, you do not check your brain at the door. Paul engages the mind seven times in these verses when he says, if. You see it? If 
seven times. If there's no resurrection, if Christ has not been raised, if it is true that the dead are not raised, if Christ, uh, Christ has not been raised, if we have hope only in this life. What's Paul doing with these words? He's reasoning. He's using logic, which implies that the Corinthians could appreciate logic and reasoning. Listen, Corinth was a sophisticated urban first century colony of the superpower on earth, the Roman Empire. And so Paul is engaging them at that level. He says, think. See, that's the way we are as humans. We have heads and therefore we must be given facts and evidences and arguments in order to make reasonable commitments. And, and as we shall see, we have hearts with longings and yearnings and fears and desires. So if someone urges me to commit myself to a certain goal, that someone needs to persuade my head that the goal really is there as he says it is and then needs to move my heart to feel the value of attaining it. And I think that's what's going on here in these verses. God gave us minds that we might think through all of the reasons that exist for treasuring him in all things and above all things. And by all things, I mean arts and sciences and literature and technology and the natural world. Thinking under the mighty hand of God. Thinking soaked in prayer. Thinking carried by the Holy Spirit. Thinking tethered to the Bible. Thinking in pursuit of more reasons to the praise of the glories of God. Thinking in the service of love. This is why God made us. And Paul's thinking crescendos with verse 19. He's leading up to a point, and the crescendo is in verse 19. He says, if all we're doing is for this life alone, we have got to be the sorriest people on the face of the earth. And if Christ isn't raised, that means Paul's been lying. And then that means that preaching, his preaching, and this right now, is useless. And then faith is useless. And then everything done is useless. Listen, the message of Christianity isn't merely to spruce up the neighborhood. Think. Years ago, this congregation bought 10 acres of land. And then they built a small facility for worship. And then more space was constructed in the 1980s. And then about 20 years ago, this was built. And then about five years ago, another project there. With children's and family ministry. and All of this. All of this by the generosity of the congregation. That's just the facilities. Okay. Then, then there's the hundreds of thousands of dollars that's been given to missionaries, both stateside and abroad. And then there are monies for benevolence. And, uh, and then there's the volunteer labor. Not only for you know, ministries within the congregation, but out in the community and, and, and abroad. I'm thinking of Habitat for Humanity, the Dominican Republic, Haiti. And all of this, all of this, Paul says, is futile and in vain apart from the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says, why waste your life 
with all of the energy this entails if there is no life beyond this life. Think, Paul says. That's why he says in verse 30, why do you think we're in danger every hour? And then referring to the riot that just about took his life in the book of Acts chapter 19, Paul says in verse 32, what do I gain if humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? I mean, think, Paul says. And then Paul does. And then Paul says, boldly, in verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. In fact, here are the facts. Fact one, Christ died. This is attested. This is attested in history from non-Christians. Christ was crucified. Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. Fact number two, Christ was buried in a known tomb. Witnesses saw where Jesus was buried, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. That's a fact. Fact three, on the third day, the tomb which witnesses saw Christ's body being placed into the tomb, on the third day, the tomb was empty. Fact four, witnesses testified to having experienced Jesus alive in a trans-physical body. Paul covers this in verses 5 through 8 of 1 Corinthians 15. And then fact five, lives were changed. Lives were changed. Paul says, my life was changed. These are the facts. Think, Christ has been raised. And therefore, here's the positive side of verses 12 through 19. Because Christ has been raised, we will be raised. This life is not all there is. There is this life, and then there is the life to come. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that this age is passing away. But there is the new heavens and the new earth to come. We will be raised. That's a fact. Because Christ has been raised, verse 14, Christian preaching, both Paul's and here and now, it's useful. It's uh, because Christ has been raised, verse 15, the Bible is truthful. Because Christ has been raised, verse 17, our faith is meaningful. And, and we are not in our sins because Christ has been raised. Listen to me. Sin is not merely a moral defect. Sin is a realm. And because of Christ's bodily resurrection, that realm has been broken. And verse 18 says, because it has been broken, we will not perish. And therefore, verse 19, we're not the most pitiable people on the earth. We're the most enviable people on earth. Can I get another amen? <laughs> Paul urges us to think. Brothers and sisters, think. Follow the facts. The resurrection of Christ indivisibly guarantees our resurrection. Christian hope is not based on herd immunity. And it's not subject to virus variants. Or vaccines. Our hope is in a resurrected king. Think. Amen. Amen. Well, Paul's not done. So I better not be done. 
in verses 20 to 28, having spoken to the mind, Paul speaks to the heart. And he assures us, he assures us that the, that the resurrection of Christ means that what is will not always be. What is will not always be. Christ, Christ's resurrection means that one day he will appear in power to bring about his kingdom. And, and here is the, here's, the, here's the chief emotion I feel of assurance when I look at verses 20 to 28. It's this. <sighs> okay. See, All will be well. All is well and all will be well. Help, help has come and there's more, and there's more to come. The, re the resurrection is not just an impressive miracle. It is the chief resource of God's new world. It's not just a solitary supernatural sign. It's Normandy Beach. When the Allies landed on Normandy Beach, June 6, 1944, that was the beginning of the end of an old regime. A new regime was taking over. And that's why verse 19 says, but Christ, uh, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have died or, or fallen asleep. What, what Jesus accomplished will affect those who are in him. The, the resurrection of Christ was the first fruits of a greater plan. In agricultural terms, first fruits is the very first showing of a given harvest. And if the first fruits are good, that's a good sign that the rest of the harvest will be good. Christ's resurrection is only the beginning of God's greater plan of resurrection. Just as Adam functioned as the federal representative of his people and everyone inherited death because of Adam's fall into sin, Jesus functions as the federal head of his people and everyone in him inherits resurrection life because Jesus defeated death. Verses 21 and 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So did you see that? Christianity does not begin with, here's how you need to live. Rather, it starts with, here's what Jesus Christ did for you in history. He died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised. He appeared. See? So this prompts the question. Who is running the verbs of your life? God credited us righteousness of Christ who lived a holy and righteous life for us by grace through faith in him. God forgave us so that we can live without guilt or shame. God created us in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand. God's grace resources any good that comes from us. That's why Paul says, I worked harder than all the other, other apostles. Then he corrects himself. He says, yet not I, but the grace of God in me. I am what I am because of the grace of God. Who's running the verbs of your life? 
I'm rescued, I'm saved because Jesus is the subject of the verbs. He stormed Normandy Beach and he went on a search and rescue mission to find me. And he died in my place to annihilate sin. And one day, D-Day will give way to V-Day. Verse 23, but to each in his own order. That's military talk there. One day God's word teaches the coming or the appearing of the king. And on that day, the dead in Christ will be raised. And Christ will annihilate every enemy. And the last enemy to die is death. Do you hear these militant words? That, that, those are intentional. In other passages, Jesus is called to be a shepherd over sheep. Not this one. In these verses, keep in mind, it's a colony of the Roman Empire often inhabited by veterans of the Roman army. Paul's talking in a language that they need to understand, that they can understand. And here, this Jesus is a commanding, war-making general. And why? Because, listen, the greatest threat to our hope for a better world is the enemy that lives inside our hearts. Science can vaccinate you from COVID, but it cannot vaccinate you from evil. And by evil, I don't just mean the atrocities of genocide. I mean the ordinary cruelties of self-interest in business, racial bias, pride, corruption, and countless daily acts of selfishness that pull us apart. This evil must be annihilated, and the last enemy to go is death. And Jesus says... That in his death, burial, and resurrection, that death is as good as dead. One day our warrior king will appear. And he who on the cross rescued us from the penalty of sin, he who by his spirit is rescuing us from the power of sin, this same king in his in his coming, will one day rescue us from the presence of sin. And can you imagine what worship will be like then? As excited as we all are in gathering here today, we still struggle with sin. Oh, what a day that will be though, when we will gather as God's people. Fully purified, fully sanctified. Uh, sin and death will be annihilated. And we will, that is freedom, church family. And Paul says, when that happens, God will be all in all. <laughs> that means that one day we'll live in a world where all of us, for all eternity, will live on the resources of God. And after a year of facing the reality of our mortality, the resource of Christ's physical resurrection, man, that's assurance. That's why I say it brings me this feeling of, ah, okay, okay. Argument for the mind. Assurance for the heart. And now, the challenge. See, see this, this, this argument for hope and the assurance of hope now brings to a challenge 
a challenge grounded in and based on hope. And the challenge is this. Did you see? It's verse 34. Wake up! Wake up! Get up from your drunken stupor! Stop sinning! Paul wants us to, Paul wants us to wake up and be ready for the king's arrival. He wants us mentally alert so that we can be on our game. Uh, our world is flooded with spiritual narcotics. But more things than marijuana can cloud our minds. Satan has polluted the atmosphere with enough intoxicating incense to keep us in a spiritual haze until either we die or the day of the Lord hits us like a freight train. And of course, that's what Satan wants. So Paul says, wake up, wake up. And then Paul says this, verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. So the company you keep makes you the person you are. By the way, Paul is quoting from a Greek playwright named Menander. Now you know why I quote from movies. <laughs> I wish he'd stop quoting from, I'm just being like, the, I'm trying to be like the Apostle Paul. So anyway, but isn't that interesting? So again, he's connecting with his culture. Being, being asleep means living life as though God doesn't exist. Waking up means realizing that there is a God to whom we will give an account of our lives. Being asleep means spending our time and money as though this age were all there is. Waking up means realizing that this life is a vapor and eternity is real. Being asleep means seeing yourself as the center of this world. Waking up means counting God and neighbor more significant than self. Being asleep means assuming that if God does exist, well, he's tolerant and he'll accept you as long as you're true to yourself and do your best. Waking up means realizing that God is holy and our best will never be good enough and we need the resources of Jesus. Paul says, wake up. Start living now the way we're going to be living forever when the king returns. See, when the king returns, there's going to be culture shock. You will lessen for yourself the culture shock if you start living his way now. Wake up, he says. He's coming. And make no mistake, he is coming. He is. Otherwise, verse 29, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Is that a mysterious verse or what? Is that interesting? What, what does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't, I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not sure, okay? There are some, there are some, I know, it's a shock. I know, some of you are shocked. <laughs> what? He doesn't know. What? <laughs> Uh, we could spend more time than we have right now to, to explore all the different options. Commentators have, have offered several options as to what this might mean, okay? Now, the one option that has persuaded me is, comes from a scholar named Anthony Thistleton. And he argues that the phrase, those baptized are baptized with a view to the dead in Christ. Stay with me now. So envision this scenario. 
the scenario is that, is that of a Christian who is near death and they are pleading with their family members who have yet to make a decision for Christ to come to Christ so that we can all be together in the new heavens and the new earth. And as a result of their appeal, there is a response of faith and baptism. So those who are baptized... the, the in other words, the dead are the dead in Christ. That's the hinge of the different controversies. Who are, who are the dead? Are they, were they lost and you're being baptized for them? And Mr. Thistleton says, no, I don't think so. I think the dead are the dead in Christ. And, and they're, when they were near death, they made an appeal to their family. And they said, please come to Jesus. This is real. Hope is real. The resurrection's real. And so those baptized are baptized with a view to the dead in Christ who made an appeal to them before they died. That's my best attempt. But the point is this. This can only make sense if Christ has in fact been raised, you see. A few days uh, before Easter, I had an experience related to verse 29. Um, I got word from a family in our church that the husband, uh, 59 years of age, died. He went to bed that night and he did not wake up. And his wife found him. It was shocking. It was heartbreaking. Um, I asked her if I could share what we experienced uh, over the funeral the other day. And she said, yes, please. Um, when the funeral was about ready to start, the wife of our uh, deceased brother in Christ came up to me and said, she said, I want to say something after you're done speaking. I said, okay, absolutely. And when she got up, church family, she gave the most heartfelt appeal for the attendees at the service to come to Christ. Uh, there were about 40 there, and it was basically a family service. Some in the audience had been putting that decision off. Some had been living as if Christ hasn't been raised from, from the dead. And she stood there, and she said, My husband would want you to know this. Today is the day to come to the Lord. I mean now. Because you never know when you will step from this life into eternity. And she said anybody who knew her knew that getting up and making this kind of appeal was so contrary to her character. But the Lord just put it on her heart and gave her the words which she shared with everyone there. And uh, from my chair, I, I just witnessed this beautiful, beautiful sermon from this grieving sister in Christ whose hope was steadfast in Christ. Um, this present world is passing away. And what I saw last Tuesday, just last Tuesday, I saw a spouse at a podium next to her deceased husband's body in an open casket. And she declared Jesus Christ with tears streaming down her face. 
to her family. How do you do that without the resurrection's resource of hope? Can you imagine a congregation of believers just like her? Can you imagine what our community would look like with a thousand ambassadors going out, fueled by the hope that all we are is by the grace of God? I can imagine that. What a thing of glory in a world fogged in by sin that there is an embassy of heaven whose hope is not in a situation, whose hope is not in a location, whose hope is not in a feeling, whose hope is not in an occupation, but whose hope is a person. Hope has a name, Jesus. And he died so that you can know life, real life. And he's present with you so that you need never be alone. And he forgives you all your sins so that you can live like a forgiven person. He never mocks your weakness. He never gets tired of you. When you come to him in prayer, he never says, what now? He never says that. He always replies in tender compassion and righteous judgment. He never gives up on his relationship with you. And he never shames you for needing his good gifts. His love isn't conditional and his grace is never temporary. Jesus is our hope for the mind, for the heart, and the will. Church family, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Now wake up! <laughs>